So um, there are a number of occasions uh, throughout Revelation chapter 12. Um, I didn't look at them specifically. Um, there are a few in the first few verses and elsewhere that refer to things as being a sign. And um, it's strange how I've shared before, you've, I'm sure, run into it where especially prophecy and the book of Revelation will tell us that something is figurative. You know, it will say, it was like unto. And then you read the commentaries and they try to make it literal. And, and, you know, or uh, you'll read something that, you know, very specifically, I always talk about like the 144,000. 12,000 from each of the tribes, and he systematically goes through and names each of the tribes and tells you 12,000 from each of them, and then, you know, shifts into, and there will also be an innumerable company from all of the tribes and nations and tongues of the earth. And I mean, you read it, and you're left thinking pretty straightforward, like, okay, you got 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, and a huge number of, you know, Gentile believers, and so many commentaries then say, well, now this isn't literal. You know, th this is a figurative thing. So I just want to caution us. Um, it's, it's pretty plain, but as, you know, please use resources, commentaries and study helps. And, you know, there's great, great tools out there. But be forewarned that you need to be cautious about what you're reading and who you're reading. Uh, several things within this where it says these are a sign they're symbolic they are a sign um, and then uh, we're going to see some things described regarding the nation of Israel and uh, the coming of Jesus and uh, how um, he was attacked and continuously throughout his ministry was attacked and uh, you, if you start shifting things around and trying to make that which belongs to Israel for instance, represent the church, well, then, you know, it, it dominoes down through the understanding. Then you have to reinterpret other things and reinterpret other things. So as we move through this, we'll, we'll try to organize that in a, in a decent and right way that, uh, you know, is, I believe, fairly straightforward. So Revelation chapter 12 Beginning at verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Uh, the Catholic Church will very often depict Mary this way. You'll find all kinds of statues and all kinds of art that depict Mary this way. Um, there's a certain potential for that, but if you misrepresent things, then stuff really starts to come unglued in the process. So more accurately, the woman would represent Israel as a nation. If, if in that you want to say Mary, and thereby Jesus the child, then okay. But as the Roman Catholic institution, they do Mary, and they make her queen of heaven. Okay? Now, you really have to understand how far that concept goes. And I totally understand and agree that there are many Christians inside the Roman Catholic institution, not trying to say anything otherwise, okay? But here's the thing. Yeah. You perhaps have heard of the Immaculate Conception, right? Probably, probably, maybe you've studied a little more, but probably your mind immediately says, right, Jesus. That's not the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is a false teaching generated by the Roman Catholic Church that says Mary was conceived without any man's involvement and that she herself is divine. Okay? 
So that is why they put Mary in this place to misappropriate things. And, you know, you carry it far enough in the Roman Catholic doctrine, dogma rather, uh, and you end up literally there is a large group within Roman Catholicism that wants to make Mary, according to their doctrine, co-mediatrix, meaning Jesus, according to Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, is the one mediator between God and man. They say, no, so is it Mary. Mary, uh, Jesus gets too busy. I mean, I'm sort of mocking it, but this is literally their take on it and at times needs help. So Mary will answer your prayers and take them to Jesus. So, so pray to Mary is what they teach. So, so, so misplacing things, okay? Well, you go, well, no big deal. I mean, it's Israel and Mary is an Israelite and she gave birth to Jesus, right? Well, but then from there, the child isn't Jesus. The child is the church, according to their interpretation. Oh, okay, so wait a minute. Um, didn't Jesus give birth to the church? Right, he brought it into existence. So now that we're starting to turn the tables, all kinds of things start to get out of focus. So draw our attention back to what I believe is proper understanding of this. The woman represents Israel. The dragon we're going to hear about represents Satan. Uh, the man-child here, referring to Jesus, I believe. I think all of this is extremely safe uh, interpretation of these things, and it doesn't throw anything else out of whack down the line. Everything fits according to biblical principles. Uh, the angel, Michael, head of the angelic hosts, we have confirmation of that repeatedly through the Scripture. Old Testament and uh, New Testament, if you're thinking, well, of course, well, we'll discuss the fact that there are people that want to make Michael the Archangel Jesus, and Jesus, Michael the Archangel, you know, and if you're going, right, those Jehovah Witnesses, hmm. and those Seventh-day Adventists, okay, a and Matthew Henry's commentary, <laughs> okay, there are a number uh, of, you know, authorities you're going to run into that misappropriate things here within this passage. So the offspring of the woman uh, representing Gentiles. Okay? So if you go, Jesus, the man-child, then the offspring that comes out of it, that's why it gets difficult to make that specifically marry, because honestly, Christianity is a Jewish religion. We, we just have embraced their Messiah. And we have a full understanding of what they have been longing for and hoping for and symbolically and ritualistically rehearsing for all these centuries, for all these millennia. It's the fulfillment of these things. So the offspring of the woman representing Gentiles who come to faith specifically in the tribulation that we're going to see as we go through this. The beast that comes out of the sea representing the Antichrist. There is a separate beast that comes out of the earth representing the false prophet who promotes the Antichrist. Okay, so we have these two things. If you're thinking, well, how, how does that work? Uh, the sea throughout prophecy very often represents a great mass of people. Okay, and uh, we have a few key indicators where we hear the oceans roar, and then we hear that it is a host of people. So, so we get these indicators that the symbols are telling us of specific things. There's a principle in biblical studies known as expositional constancy. And, and that's something, you know, not to get all scholarly, heady, theologically weird. I mean, it just, I'm just a... Regular old guy who studies the Bible. <laughs> it's not, you know, expositional concept. We, we shouldn't hold on to terms as though they elevate us somehow, okay? The, the concept is, you know, exposing what's contained in a passage. Explaining, meaning the expositional 
constancy, just like it sounds. Things remain the same. They don't shift. There's not a moving target in the Scripture. So when Jesus teaches the parable of the sower and explains that the birds who come and snatch away the seed, he says the seed is the word of God and the birds are devils that would steal that word out of people's hearts. And you kind of go, oh, okay, you know, note to self. And then you flip the page and here's Jesus saying, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And if we stay with expositional constancy and you plant the mustard seed and it grows up and it fills the whole world so much so that even the birds of the air could make their home in it you kind of shudder and go oh wait a minute he told me moments ago that birds were demonic hosts and if i take expositional constantly constancy you're telling me birds demonic hosts can make their home in the church uh, look around at the stuff going on in the church today and tell me there isn't great demonic influence in the church. And it's and it's not like it's always been. It's, it's growing and growing and growing in its influence. So it's, in, it's important that as we discover and find these things, that we try to like draw the line back through the scripture and say, where does this point to? You know, see, you know when a beast comes out of the sea, what should I be looking for here? What are we talking about? Beasts? Oh, I can go all the way back to Daniel, right? Here are these beasts. And then, oh, wait, God interpreted and told us those beasts were kingdoms of the earth, rulers, authorities, right? See, great mass of people. Okay, so one's going to emerge from amongst people who is going to be this authority representing the Antichrist, you know, from the earth uh, representing the false prophet, uh, meaning that he will just emerge from very earthly things. So, you know, everyone's going, oh, really spiritual. And those of us who are in fact spiritual, born of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, listen to what he's saying and go, yeah, everything that he's saying is of the flesh, of the earth. It doesn't come from heaven, right? So you have this leader, this spiritual leader who's promoting the Antichrist, the politician, the world leader, and he's, you know, got his hands on the reins of the religious system of things, and he's steering everyone involved in that towards the Antichrist in the process. So it's, it's important that we get these things sort of straightened out. Uh, another thing that we're going to see, uh, a woman emerges uh, in association with the beast, and, and in the book of Revelation, throughout Scripture and throughout prophecy, but particularly in the book of Revelation, uh, women often represent religious systems in the book of Revelation. Jezebel, right? If you've studied her at all, historically in the nation of Israel, she brought uh, Baal worship into Israel. She was the one who, who most dramatically turned the nation of Israel's hearts away from worshiping the one true and living God and, and turned them to bowing down before idols. Idolatry had always been a problem, but nationally she steered the hearts of the people into the religion of worshiping Baal. So uh, Jezebel is associated with religious system uh, promoting false teaching. We saw that. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, they, they would be thrown into a sickbed. Those that followed her, we had read in the letters to the churches. The great harlot is associated with false religion. So you think about how Christianity has been falsified, you know, rather than uh, the depth of relationship and the sincerity of knowing uh, God, personally, uh, we've codified and ritualified everything until you can go to church every single week and have as much sin in your life as you ever did, have no close relationship with God. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to people who, you know, done it for decades before they woke up and realized, wait a minute, I don't have any relationship with God. So, uh, you know, this great harlot. The bride is associated with the church. We're going to see that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. You're going to find people that are just 
ravenous online about that particular issue. The heaven is the bride of Christ. It specifically says, Revelation 19, that heaven is coming down and that is the bride and to say that it's the church and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, Paul said that he wanted to present us as a chaste virgin to Jesus as the groom, as a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, okay? God is not overly concerned, as we've talked about before, with the physical structure of heaven, you know? If that was empty of people, he wouldn't be, like, deeply fulfilled. <laughs> in dirt, you know, his whole purpose in all of creation is his relationship with his created beings, angels and human beings and those that he has fellowship with. So, you know, we are the church. So uh, we've talked about uh, this uh, whole uh, issue, uh, Roman Catholic claims uh, of the woman and Mary, pictured as the queen of heaven. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, uh, it's, it's interesting, it's interesting, uh, that whole thing, uh, Seventh-day Adventism and her being the prophetess of Seventh-day Adventism, that all began right here in Maine. Yeah. So uh, Addison, if you know where uh, Addison is, and then later over in Monson. And uh, there's some interesting things. Uh, they've recently found articles that were published in the Bangor, or no, in the uh, Portland Herald, uh, back in the 1800s when all of that was developing and there were lawsuits being brought against uh, the people that were part of that organization for, I'll just say, the shenanigans that were going on in their meetings and, and, and prominent people that were invited to them and were witness to the nonsense that was being cloaked as Christianity. And, and I, I mean like straight out, sinful, ungodly, unbiblical behavior. We're not talking about like worshiping in even charismatic ways that are different than ours. We're talking about things that like, okay, you, you aren't behaving as Christians at all. And, and they were big enough to where there were legal charges brought and people were held accountable and actually fined and went to court and, that was all lost, and recently a historian who was looking into just the history kept coming across this phrase about the incident with this particular individual and then discovered that, oh, that's actually logged in some archives, some legal archives. Oh, wait a minute. Like, you know, if it was just a religious thing and it was an incident amongst religious people, then whatever. You know, you could find that, discover it, and know whatever was involved in that. But now it's registered with the court. So you take the time, look into all of that and the things that were going on. Uh, she claimed, Mary Baker Eddy, claimed to be the woman of Revelation. So, um, you know, there are some things along the way you need to be aware of in how things develop. Scripturally, the woman clothed with the sun should be identified as Israel. And that comes from the fact that in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has that dream where he sees the sun and the moon bowing down to him and the stars are his brothers. And he, he makes the interpretive conclusion with God's authority that his father is the sun, his mother is the moon, the children are the stars, and that he, Joseph, will be the leader that they eventually all bow down to. So we need to derive, that's, that's the household of Israel right there. All, all of Israel stems from that mother and father and those sons. Okay, so, so to move outside the biblical understanding is to really warp the scripture. Where do we want to... I believe it was Chuck Missler that I first heard say, uh, the best commentary you will ever find on the Bible is the Bible. Okay, so so you want to, you know, when you're finding, you know, whatever definitions or you know ciphers you may have had or thought or been given, 
when you find that the scripture gives a clarity, uh, that's the one you want to stick with. That, that's the one you want to hold to. So, you know, in that dream, the sun represented Jacob, the moon represented Joseph's mother, Rachel, the 11 stars were the sons of Israel who bowed down to Joseph. And this sign, the 12 star, Joseph is now among the other tribes of Israel. So, so if that's confusing to you, he was separated out and taken into Egypt and had two sons. And when he came, his father claimed right Ephraim and Manasseh and basically said, these will replace you in the, in the lineage. And then as we move down through, we see that they are, in fact, receiving all the blessing of Joseph. So now when we get to this vision, there's no need to try. And, and, and if you're thinking like, well, why, why would you even suggest that? The kings of Europe have long held this issue of divine right. And they do that. We all go, well, that's kind of weird you know, that, that they believe God has given them the authority to rule over all of their subjects. Yeah, they literally have misappropriated the scripture and said, uh, we are the lost tribes of Israel. We are descendant from Abraham. Literally saying uh, the reason we're called Danish is because we're descendants of the tribe of Dan. You know, I don't know where France fits in there. And, you know, but anyway, they're saying they as royal families descended directly from David and, you know, from these other patriarchs that were the heads of Israel. So, you know, let's not move anything. There's a proverb that tells us to not move the boundary markers, particularly of the orphan or the widow, because God is their judge and he will hold account. The idea is you got a property and you want more pasture land. So in the night you go out and you take up the boundary markers, which was usually like a large pile of stones, and you move them all further onto your neighbor's property, thereby claiming property that is not your own. You're stealing property from them. Yes, it has that direct implication, but it's also a biblical precept of what God has defined, set markers, and shown us interpretations of. Don't try to move those things. If it's defined as Israel, leave it as Israel. Don't try to root anything up and plant it in another place because you're stealing from God when you do that. An example, God defined marriage between one man and one woman. You move that marker, you just stole territory that belongs to God from God. You're going to have to contend with God. You start moving those things. And of course, that throws the whole survey off, doesn't it? Right? Because if you're supposed to move so many degrees and then mark out so many feet from this pin to that pin, and now the markers move, well, none of this measurement works. And oh, well, so in the end, why can't a human being marry an animal? And we laugh and go, that's ridiculous. Except in India, they're doing it. Okay, you start moving the God-defined markers, everything gets out of place. So as we look at the scripture, we want to very much hold to the clear understanding. Later in the chapter, it becomes very clear that the child born of Israel is Jesus. So verse 3, another sign, right? Not a literal thing. It's a sign is going to appear in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his head. Crowns. Okay, listen. We should not look at this and think, you know, oh, intimidating fiery red dragon and, uh, you know, all of this authority and power, seven heads. Uh, we're going to see political system and seven separate rulers, seven heads and ten crowns. Okay, and we should not look at this like God is establishing this and we should all sort of shrink back with what an ominous figure in all of history, okay? If you've studied like the writings of Daniels and his interpretations of dreams and visions and seen the bear and the leopard and the different things represented there, they were all very intimidating. Now a, a full-blown dragon is on the scene. 
and I mean, compared to all other beings, you're going to be left thinking like, what a powerful, uh, this is all, the way it's written in the Greek language is, this thing is presenting itself in this way. It's not as though we should, you know, see this in this passage and go, my goodness, look at the destructive capability, look at the power of this creature, you know, compare this to a leopard you know, the leopard doesn't say it's it. You know, we might even say paper dragon. OK, yeah, 10 heads, <laughs> you know, or seven heads, 10 horn. Right. Great. Whatever. All of this is still under God's purview. Right. He, he's he's the authority. And we also know this is a very limited, short window of time. Think about this. Right. An entire international political structure that only lasts seven years. <laughs> I mean, on the grand scale of history, uh, that's really short, re really inconsequential. Why, why are we so wound up about it? You know, as believers, comparing that against Jesus Christ's eternal authority, I don't mean to make light of it as, you know, don't get the impression like I'm just brushing it off as something inconsequential. But please understand that the great bluster that is being presented here, it, it's self-promotion. You know, we have this young cat. He's not even two years old. My wife loves cats, and this one was this crazy stray we took in. And we did not know anything about uh, what are called Russian blue Okay, and these cats have they got something wrong in their head. They're they're, they're a little messed up. But anyway, um, I don't mess with him, so he likes me and I like him. But Lori likes to torment cats and play with them, and so you know she's frequently scarred. But anyway, um, he does that thing where he comes at you sideways, back all up. He you know just great commotion, and you, and you almost just want to be like flick, you know, just like <laughs> cut it out, man. And, and that's sort of what this is, okay? There is a serious threat to it. He's got weaponry. The, the, you know, the people that are going to have to contend with him. But on the grand scale of things, this is him puffing himself right up. Ten heads, you know, seven heads, look at me. Uh, big deal. You know, there's one that's going to come who's going to crush your head. And and we're, we don't have to be concerned about that. Um, so in regard to this seven heads... Ten horns, seven crowns on his head. Daniel chapter 7, very significant regarding the coming of the Antichrist and the horns that we see there. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, Daniel chapter 7 verse 8, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words, okay? And it really, it's the same concept of, like, really? You're going to run your mouth? Okay, you know, it's that idea of the things that are coming out of their mouth uh, are inconsequential to those that belong to the Lord. You know, to the world, it's going to seem extremely intimidating even here it's described as a little horn okay I, i've noticed this about particularly mothers um they do it especially with their sons but they will refer to everything they are and everything they have as little okay follow it you know so you and all your little friends and if you could do me a favor and get your little truck out of my driveway and you're you know what i'm saying little Little, little, you're little, I'm big is the, is the implication, you know, you know, I raised you, I changed your diapers, you know, you wouldn't be alive had I not fed you. And now you're full of yourself. You and your little horn need to, you know, it's sort of, and that's really what Daniel is sort of saying is everybody's going to be freaked out because you've got these horns, which are symbols of authority. And, oh, man, this horn comes up and uproots three others. <laughs> and notice that it's depicted as the little horn. You know, the devil himself. 
We hear so many intimidating things, and I don't want us to be arrogant against the devil, not in any way. His power is frightening. Uh, you know, the scripture describes him as a roaring lion who roams around seeking whom he may devour. But when it comes time to finish this all up, they send one angel to arrest him. One. Not even Michael the archangel. You know, I make light of it and say, you know, it's probably like the janitor angel, you know, who's busy, thick glasses and out somewhere and go get Schmigli. And, you know, he goes and finds the devil and puts him in handcuffs and throws him in jail for a thousand years. When it comes to comparing God's authority against whatever authority Satan has, it's little. It's insignificant. So there's this dragon, this you know, great sign that appears in heaven. And we get these descriptions. The uh, seven heads would seem to give us that indication of seven separate nations. Uh, within that, there are ten horns. So symbols of authority and power. Lots of people do lots of things with those. Political power, military power. That's why we may see some nations that only have one horn, where others have two. That's why we get ten horns on seven heads. The seven diadems on his head seem to give us the indication that that's the real kingdoms you're talking about. Seven, they symbolize kings. Each crown would say, this is a nation, this is a nation, this is a nation. You know, think of it this way. This nation has tremendous political power. While this one doesn't have much political power, but let's just say, for example, they have nuclear weaponry. So they have a horn. This one has great political power and also great military power. So two horns. However you want to divide horns up, it's that idea of, you know, that which could be a threat to you. You know, you, you, you get into a pen with sheep, right? And they're all doing their sheep stuff. And then you notice one is headed towards you and he has horns. <laughs> You're going to be distinctly paying attention to that. All of them can butt you. They can drop their head and drive into you. But the one with horns is the one you're going to be the most concerned about in that setting. And that's the idea here. You know, move it up a scale to like ox or bull or, you know, something that its horn is a serious threat. And that's the idea that you're getting here. Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his heads. Verse four, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Immediately, it would make sense to jump to a conclusion of Satan. Uh, a third of the angels fell from heaven with him. Uh, we see angels being represented as stars. There are some things that don't make it that clear for us. But it is quite possible. Uh, many of these things, uh, when they are concluding, will have the realization of, oh, there it is right there. You know, for now, uh, you know, it stands as a, a distinction that this beast is going to come and ta his tail is going to draw a third of the stars of heaven through them to the earth. The tail on a lot of especially lizard-like, you know, you've got this dragon being, and let's be clear about something here. Um, the scripture records dragons, fire-breathing dragons, as being real. So Job 41, take your time to read of the Leviathan that is there. His scales are like armor plates. The javelin will not pierce him. Uh, there's flashing that goes out uh, in his breath all of the time. He can kindle the forest afire with his breath. He can make the water boil with his breath. He lives in the deep of the ocean. He is also capable of flying. There's a number of things about Leviathan that are translated to us as literal, not symbolic. Okay, 
And if you go, well, I don't believe in dragons, that's mythological whatnot, okay? Well, here's a thought. Every single culture of the ancient world recorded the existence of dragons as being real, okay? They drew of them. They wrote of them. They, they were everywhere. Now, if you think, well, where are the dragons now? Well, how about this? If dragons were real, as I'm proposing that they were, and you had to contend with them, what would your goal be? <laughs> Kill them all, right? They, they don't serve any good purpose other than destruction. And that's what history records for us. Now, here's another thought. The term dinosaur did not come into modern language until 1869. Dragons and dinosaurs both were referred to by ancient authors as dragons only. Be they lizard, right? I mean, alligators were referred to as dragons. Okay, so dragons in the ancient world there were lots of different dragons that existed in the ancient world. Some of them breathed fire, according to the ancient text. They've been long since gone, and whether they breathed fire or not, I believe the scripture. You know, I don't hold to uh, you know, what all of the myth and legend says. I hold to what the word of God says says the behemoth and leviathan both described in the book of job and they're frankly describing what can only be thought of as dragons and dinosaurs right living with men uh, there are a number of things i could go into about the fact that we have very strong evidence that men and dinosaurs lived at the exact same time there isn't a massive period of time separating them the Paluxy Riverbed was flooded in the late 70s, washed all of the embankment away, leaving exposed limestone. In the limestone, there were so many dinosaur footprints. The entire, you know, paleontological world was just fascinated with what was going on there. And what they were most disgusted with was they found footprints of human beings with dinosaur footprints on top of them. So the dinosaur stepped there after the human being, not millions of years before and then after. They were all running in the same direction, you know, seemingly together, as though something was going to kill them all, you know, like a great flood or something. I don't know. There's a thought there. You can consider that on your own. Um, the tail of lizards, especially dangerous. Um, you know, you have the head turned away and don't take that tail seriously and that tail will put you down and now you're going to have to contend with the teeth since you're on it. So the tail, what, you know, might've been brushed off and thought of as meaningless, sweeps a third of the stars from heaven through the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. I'd encourage you to write down Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 right there. Because that was Herod's attempt to kill Jesus. He had the wise men before him, said, go out and find the one who has been born as king of the Jews so that I could go and worship him also. His intention was to go kill that child. When they didn't return to him, he calculated when the star appeared which was two years previous, and he went to Bethlehem and he killed all of the children that were under two years of age, all of the male children that were under two years of age at that point. So, you know, in the very beginning, murderous attempts now go through the entirety of Jesus' ministry, and our enemy is clearly trying to kill Jesus throughout his whole ministry. All kinds of things. You know, if you think, well, you know, there was... The, the Jews at one point, they were going to attack, and then there was another group. How about right in the beginning when Jesus had fasted for 40 days and Satan takes him to the top of the temple and says, just jump off. And, um, you know, when the angels catch you, everyone will worship you and you'll be made the Messiah. And Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
there's there's a thing behind that that he may have been caught by the angels uh, because it wasn't his intended point of death, but he would have been obeying Satan at that point, which would have made Satan the master of God. Romans 6.16, whom you obey, that is your master, whether it be sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So if if... Adam obeys Satan, and thereby Satan becomes the lord of this earth. Adam was the lord of this earth. God gave it to him and said, fill the earth and subdue it. Right. So Jesus shows up and says, Satan is the god of this earth. So that tells us the transfer authority did take place from Adam. to. So if Satan shows up with Jesus and says, step off the roof of this building right now, and Jesus obeys him, like Adam, Satan has the potential to become master over God, which that's his goal, right? I'll exalt myself above your throne was what he had said in that moment. The Jews had been fed a lie, I believe, by Satan for almost a century at that point that when the Messiah appeared, he would appear on the, the, te the roof of the temple. So if Jesus jumps off the roof of the temple, and let's just say he is caught by angels, then they would have hailed him as the Messiah, but he would have subsequently been under the authority of Satan. So there's a big, long process there. Point is, Satan's trying to destroy him. That's that's all I'm trying to say. Is Satan is trying to kill him, destroy him, bring him under his power and authority from the very beginning, throughout the entire process of his ministry. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Dun, dun, dun. There, that's Jesus, right? You can't interpret that any other way. Uh, we know that when Jesus sets up his eternal kingdom, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So here we are being given the explanation. So for anyone to try and warp who the male child is, oh, well, that's the church, and they turn it into all kinds of strange things. Very short-sighted look for the scripture to interpret the scripture. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her uh, uh, there 1,260 days. Three and a half years. Okay. Um, <clears throat> second half of the tribulation. Um, preterism. Um, Preterism, by definition, meaning the past. Uh, there are large groups of uh, preterists inside Christianity, some of them very popular teachers that we know and love, and their w work within the Scripture is wonderful. But they say, Book of Revelation's already happened. It's all behind us. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, already completed, already finished. 65 A.D., when Rome came into Israel, that's where most of it took place. It's all back. And if, if they believe in a millennialism, then it's, it's, uh, it's figurative. It's not a literal thousand years. It's just a span of God's eternal kingdom reigning in the hearts and minds of men and women. You know, all millennialism. Just we're, we're in the millennium right now is what they teach. Very specifically here, this is the second three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And those that flee into the wilderness will be preserved by God. They want to point to, uh, you know, maybe you're aware, already aware of this, but the Christians in Jerusalem saw, the, as a whole, all of them collectively talking with one another and watching what was developing, they saw the coming buildup of the Roman army and the fall of Jerusalem. And they remembered Jesus saying, when you see these things take place, flee to the mountains, and literally all in one day, they gathered up their junk, and they crossed the Jordan River and went to the other side, and the siege fell the next day. Not one Christian perished in the siege of Israel, and particularly the destruction of Jerusalem. Not one, because they obeyed what Jesus Christ said, to which the preterists say, see, that's the fulfillment of this. Yeah, but it wasn't for three and a half years. <laughs> if they didn't hide in the wilderness and receive... This great system. They dispersed. At that point, they went, oh, that was terrible. And then they went all across the top of Africa and down through Egypt and back around uh, mostly, you know, Asia Minor into Turkey in that area. Some of them went as far, you know, uh, 
westward uh, out through to Europe and Italy and Rome and some of those places. Uh, but it wasn't this being preserved specifically for the three and a half year period that's being described here. There is reported to be an American businessman who has gone through great effort to invest a tremendous amount of money in hiding great food stores and gospel tracts, in particular the explanation of Jesus as the Messiah, inside the rock city of Petra, where a lot of people insist this is where they're going to hide themselves uh, during this period of time. I have a hard time believing that, uh, both aspects of it. It's a tremendous tourist center, and it would be hard for you to get in there and squirrel things away to the degree that you'd be able to sustain. I, I think it's going to be what we've seen throughout the scripture of God's servants fleeing into the wilderness and being sustained by God. You know, how about this, you guys? Uh, it was presented to me uh, years ago. Elisha in the wilderness, right? He, he's receiving uh, from the ravens, uh, unclean bird. He's receiving meat uh, from them. Uh, so, you know, he left thinking like, ooh, carnage, like roadkill, like ravens or scuba. Uh, there, there are scholars that actually make the point that uh, that passage seems to indicate that they were bringing the meat from the altar. Don't know how true that is, but uh, you know, my my point within this is God's got all kinds of ways to sustain His children, and uh, we have the promise here that it's going to happen. So guess what? I believe it's going to happen. That it's going to happen, as He said. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Uh, th this group right here, we've had a fair discussion about Satan's ability to be in the presence of God. Uh, in the book of Job in particular, when he comes into the presence of the Lord, and often people will say, well, no evil uh, can be in the presence of God. The scripture specifically says no evil can dwell in the presence of God. So they can't make their home there. And then, you know, Jesus is saying, well, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So is, you know, to the apostles, uh, it, you know, so then they want to look at this and say, well, this must be a separate event that took place. Well, uh, Jesus is in the past and in the present and in the future. So was he telling the apostles about what he saw coming in the future? Or was it something he saw in the past? We don't know. Uh, here, war breaks out, and Satan apparently is finally booted from heaven. No more entrance. Your day pass is over, and you don't get to come here anymore, is sort of what is said at this point. You know, then the question becomes, when did this take place? Right? We're assuming future tense, or is this past tense? We don't know that one either, okay? What we know is we're being given a glimpse to an event. You know, it's it's hard to put these things in grammatical order sometimes. So trust that it took place. War breaks out. Michael, the archangels, they don't prevail. Uh, no place for them any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. His angels were cast out with him. So that pretty much tells us well, the one-third of the stars were and what was going on in those circumstances. Now, just a couple of things regarding Michael. We know from Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, 10, verse 20, 10, verse 21, that Michael is the archangel prince amongst many angels that have different levels of authority. What does that mean? We, we don't know. There's rank amongst them. It sounds like the way it's being described that all other angels salute and say, yes, sir, to Michael is what's being described. It becomes really inappropriate to try and make Michael the archangel Jesus. Okay. Um, we see 
Jesus appearing a few times throughout the scripture, and he is declared to be the commander of the Lord of hosts, meaning he's the commander over the army. And because Michael is described as being a commander over the armies of the angelic forces, people want to draw straight lines there, right? Generals answer to kings. But they also have all of the angelic hosts or all of their soldiers answer to them. Right? All of those, and take any army in the world. If you've got a singular general, commander of all armed forces in a country, all of the armed forces in that country answer to that general. If there is a president or a prime minister or a king, those troops also answer to that authority. So to say that there are two authorities within the heavenly realm is an understood thing in the earthly realm. We, we don't have to try and mix up who Jesus is. There are big problems with it because we are told that Michael is a created being. Right? We're told in John chapter 1 specifically that Jesus created all things. Jesus himself was not created. You start trying to make Jesus Michael the archangel, and you are robbing him of his deity. You, you are taking his godhood away from him by doing so. So I would caution you uh, specifically Matthew Henry, I really enjoy his commentary, but he refers to Michael the Archangel as our great prince. Okay, not entirely accurate. Maybe he, he wrote more than 300 years ago. So maybe when we run into Michael, you know, in, in uh, uh, Matthew Henry, rather, in uh, heaven, he, he could explain to us what he meant when he referred to Michael as our great prince. Maybe he was saying, because we're under the authority of God that we fall under the authority of uh, Michael the Archangel. Also, uh, the you know the Seventh Day Adventists, as I said, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are really adamant about this that uh, Michael the Archangel is Jesus. Jesus is Michael the Archangel, and they go as far as to say straight out, yes, Jesus is a created being. He is not God, and. Uh, they, they, they warp a lot of scripture to do that. Particularly, they go to Proverbs chapter 8, and they begin at about verse 22, uh, where it's speaking of wisdom, and the, it's a female personification of wisdom, and how she was created and brought forth and used by God to establish all of creation. And they, and they, they don't start at the beginning of the chapter. That's always what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. They yank things out of context and build a case that is completely false. So they they take things that are attributed to wisdom and they try to attribute them to Jesus. So I would encourage you to reject that wholesale. Don't even bother trying to do anything with that concept. It, it, I would say it's false and uh, you need not concern yourself with it. So uh, continuing in verse 10, Revelation chapter 12, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. Boy, remember that, right? Because he can get inside your own head. He really can. There, there is a profound difference uh, between conviction and accusation. Condemnation, does that make it clear? Right? Condemnation and conviction. The Holy Spirit might say to you or I, hey, that's not what a child of God does. And you're like, I do need to stop and need the help of the Lord, or I need to begin this behavior with the help of the Lord. Conviction, right? Condemnation. You know, you really stink. <laughs> I've noticed you just failed right there, and you probably ought to just quit because you you're never going to get it right. And the condemnation. Why do you think God accepts you? Why do you think you're a child of God? You've been, you've been failing at that same point your entire life. And look, you just did it again. Yeah, I have. Yes, I am. 
and there be the grace of God, right, that might even convict me and teach me and instruct me. He's the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, and assume that all of his minions are just like him. So whatever little devil bugs us, you know, follows us around all day, shouting in our mind or, you know, out of the mouth of some stranger that uh, would condemn you and cause you to feel defeated. That's the work of the devil himself. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. Just had a conversation this morning about a man that went to be with the Lord recently. And he surrendered his life to Christ at the last minute. And it was a sincere, I say last minute, in the final days of his life. And there were questions about, yeah, but he never lived it out. True. Neither did the thief at the cross. Okay. That conversion was last minute. And how much did you see of him? He immediately began to testify, didn't he? Saying to the other thief, hey, we deserve this. But this man is innocent. Testifying of Jesus' character and accurately confessing his own character, there was just a glimpse, a blip in all of history where you saw, oh, conversion. How much conversion do you have to see, right? Just enough. Just enough. The Lord is the judge, not us, right? Oh, if we start measuring people, well, we watched him those last few days, and there wasn't a lot, you know? Okay, you want to point to these few things, right? He ended this sinful relationship with his life. He ended this sinful behavior in his life. He ended this in his life. He started this, and he started that, and he started one of those there. But that's not much. You know, three things he quit, three things that he began. Yeah, but that's enough evidence to say there was a conversion there. Something happened. There was, oh, but he still had a foul mouth. And he still had, and he still had, what if we examined anyone's life? Anyone's life. Put the best person up, right? Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. Are we not going to find flaws? How are we saved? By grace. By Jesus Christ's power. Not mine, not yours. By his blood and the word of their testimony. What is the word of the testimony? Well, that can be very long in some cases. For some people, it can be as simple as, do you trust Jesus Christ for your salvation? And the answer is yes. That's, that's how we are saved. By the word of your testimony. How long is your testimony? If it's extremely long, I'd love to hear it. If it's extremely brief, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> your testimony of conversion. I was a filthy, rotten sinner who needed Jesus. Ask Jesus to save me, and here I am. I mean, that's the summary of all of us, is it not? That's the word of our testimony and the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything else that gets inside your head, what do we, the old timers just sticks in your craw, right? <laughs> that just bugs you, okay? The accuser of the brethren. In your head, in your environment, before the Lord, day and night, saying, look at this freak. He's just terrible. He just fails all the time. Yes, true. That's right. All of that history, I cannot deny. Where I am saved? By the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony. They did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore, rejoice, O heaven, you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the, inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. I'm already long, but I like using this illustration. Forgive me. My father-in-law did two tours in Vietnam. And he did some pretty gnarly stuff along the way. And uh, I already used the term, but 
serious as a heart attack. You know, when it comes down to the brass tacks, Alan Champney can handle himself. So my wedding day, we're at his house. It was a big celebration. His daughter just got married. And my three groomsmen come to me and say, let's throw your father-in-law in the pool. And I say, that can't happen. It's physically impossible. He'll kill us all. What we can do is all three of us, all four of us, three of them and myself, all four of us could tackle him together into the pool. And he would think that was very funny. But you're not just going to walk up to this man and grab a hold of him and throw him in the pool. He'll hand you some portion of your body back to yourself. It's not a good idea. Oh, great. Let's do it. Let's get out of our tuxedos and we'll all tackle Alan into the pool. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. I'm into it. Inside, put on my street clothes, put the tuxedo away. I come up to the pool deck and look across. My three groomsmen see me. My father-in-law is walking on the pool deck straight away from me. They give the thumbs up like, this is it. And I give them like, wait a second. And they all stand and they run around the corner of the pool straight into him. I know death awaits them. <clears throat> so I turn sharply left to go across the pool deck. And I just watch as they run one, two, three, right into him. And they fly through the air. One after the other, literally screaming in pain as they go and crash into the pool. And here's the best part to me. He whips around in defensive posture to look behind him and sees me and gives me the, yeah, look. He knew I would be party to it. His brain understood those three guys is not just three guys. There's a fourth one. And he immediately prepared himself for it. If I'm going in the pool, you're all going in the pool. If I'm going to hell, you're all going with me. Satan's been thrown out of heaven, and he's come down to the earth, and you hear from heaven, woe to the earth. This is as bad as it. You think it's bad right now? You think it's bad right now? You wait until the full realization of his judgment is in his mind. He's got everything cooking, right? He's got the dragon. He's got the Antichrist. He's got the beast. Everything's rolling. And the full confirmation comes to his mind. I am not going to win. If he's not going to win, everybody's going down with him. The voice from heaven says, woe to the earth. Woe to the sea. People talk about, oh, if there's a God, how come all of these bad things? Because there's a devil. You wait until God has lifted his hand off completely and says, oh, oh, you really don't want me? You don't, you do not, you kick me out of the school? You've kicked me out of the government? You've kicked me out of your, you, really, you don't want me involved in creation? All right. Let's see what Satan does to you. What, is, what does the devil do? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. That's it. God's protective hand is still in place to this day. You remo remove God's protective hand, it's going to be terrifying. It's going to be terrifying. Close it out, verse 13. Now when the dra dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. There's the three and a half years again from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. Water, sea, great mass of people. Okay, probably massive army, massive flood that would try to capture and consume. He spews out this great amount of water caused her way to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I have a friend from my childhood. Um, 
don't have permission to use his name. His first name is Sean. And Sean went in the Marine Corps um, when we were in high school, right out of high school. And uh, shortly after that, the uh, Desert Storm, 91 Marine Corps, first to deploy into Kuwait. His job, amphibious landing, their whole crew straight across the desert. The engineers had looked everything over, and the terrain was such that they were going to basically be able to draw almost a, a straight path from where their landing was to the Kuwait airport. need to get there, capture, and secure the airport. It's going to be hypercritical to everything that's going to go on from that point forward. They hit the ground, no resistance, all through the night. They just motor through all the way, get to their positions. The next day, they've set up all these markers along the route, you know, the engineers, so that they can follow back and forth. This is going to be like a highway for them for like the next weeks as they get firmly established in country. And the next day, as they're driving back, everyone is shocked because they come to a destroyed fence that's clearly marked as this is a minefield. This is the road that they drove here on. They drove through the minefield all night. They drove over mines. Their tire tracks drove over not one vehicle, hundreds of vehicles. Not one mine, hundreds of mines. They had to send the Army Corps of Engineers in and ordnance disposal and spend days diffusing mines to reestablish that road because that was the route they were going to use no matter what. They had literally in the sand and in the darkness just driven through a fence and didn't even know it and just drove right through the desert right over minefield. When we're hearing that the earth is going to open up, how does that happen in particular? We don't know. What I can tell you is that will take place. And once again, we'll be watching from the mezzanine and be able to go, oh, and that's what that means. As the Lord protects and preserves his people. Will it be great cash stores of food and tracks hidden in the rock city of Petra? Maybe. Maybe something entirely different. Manna, right? Yeah, ravens bringing food from who knows where, right? God will provide, right? The quail that they took out of the air when the children of Israel uh, said that they to God that they were sick of the bread, the manna, and they wanted meat. And God said, I'm going to send you quail. That actually still to this day commonly happens. That when they're migrating... They have to flap their way all the way across the Red Sea. And when they get to the other side, the birds are so exhausted, they're flying you know, right in the batter box. Just <laughs> When they come ashore, they often will just land in big masses and like not even move. You can go out and pick them up, just like dinner. You know? <laughs> that, that, that simple, that quick. God will use his resources. You know, open up the ground, swallow those that pursue them, confuse them, however he's going to do it. God is going to make sure that his people are taken care of. Apply that to yourself. That whatever your trials are and your challenges in life, you can fly in the wings of eagles and flee into the presence of the Lord and wait upon his provision and he will be there for you. It's the accuser of the brethren that will get in your ear and tell you it's hopeless and why do you do this and it's never going to happen and you've tried this before. Trust the Lord. Wait upon his hand and let him provide. Amen?